today, we're going to take just a minute, uh, actually more than a minute, we're going to take a few minutes, and we're going to talk about what this recalibration that we've been discovering in the book of Acts in the first century church has to do with us in the 21st century in the way that God is recalibrating everything in us. And the way He's recalibrating us individually moves us to a, to a very, very important place. Uh, it, it's a place where, where God begins to change the way not only that we act, not only that we think, and not only that we believe, but He begins to change us in the core of our being. He begins to change our motives. See, motives, motives reveal the reasons for our actions. Our thinking reveals kind of how we're planning to act, but our emotions reveal how we feel about it. But, but it's our motives. It's the why. Why do we do what we do? Now, in order to get our minds around that, I, I need to tell you two stories. Uh, the, the first story is about me and my own uh, struggle with the fact that language changes. For instance, when I was growing up, and most of my life, if you said someone was a goat, that, that really meant they were like the scapegoat. It meant that they were like, if they were the goat, they were the bad person. They failed. So imagine a few years ago when I'm sitting on the bench with the Anderson University basketball team, and somebody makes an amazing play. I don't know who it was. I don't even remember. What I remember is somebody going, he's the goat. And I'm like, the what? He didn't fail. He didn't mess up. They said, no, he's the goat, pastor. And I'm like, the goat? I had to go, I mean, they, I mean, where I come from, the goat is the bad person. The goat is the scapegoat. The goat is not good, but it shifted in the culture, and nobody told the bald guy. Now, some of you, some of you who are my age or older, you're, you're sitting there going, it shifted? Yeah, it shifted, all right? Because goat no longer refers to an animal. It no longer refers to somebody who fails. No, no. Goat refers to, and all of you who are like under 25, you can say this with me, okay? The greatest of all time. You see, that's only if you say the greatest of all time. Tweeting that takes more characters. But if you say the goat, then everybody, and they've even got a goat emoji. So now there's the big argument. Is Michael Jordan the goat? Is LeBron the goat? And I'm going, these were great players. No, let's see, that's the problem. Language shifts and paradigms shift. And now we're living in a world where to be the goat is to be the greatest of all time. And I tell you that story so you will understand the next story that comes from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8. Listen as I read to you from Acts chapter 8. I'm going to start reading at verse 9, and I want you to know that this guy whose story I'm going to tell you, this guy thought he was the goat. He thought he was the greatest of all time. In fact, he even took that as his name. And historians, as they've looked at him, they have always looked at him and, and really been very critical of him. But today, as, as I read you his story, and we talk about what it really means to discover who the greatest of all time is, I, I, want you to, I want you to grasp the fact that maybe instead of being critical of this guy, that, that we should consider that maybe, just maybe, we could be falling prey to the same concepts, the same failures 
that, that he did. And, and maybe if we did, instead of being the goat who's the greatest of all time, we might be the goat who was the scapegoat of the one who failed. Uh, listen to the story. It happens in a place called Samaria. The disciples who have been persecuted in Jerusalem have scattered out. We established that last week for those of you who were with us last week. And in the scattering of the disciples, because of the persecution, they begin to share the gospel. And, and Philip, one of the seven guys who was chosen to feed the widows there in Jerusalem uh, in the Christian, early Christian church, Philip is scattered out, and he goes to Samaria. Samaria is this place where they have a common heritage with the Hebrews, but they have a different religious system. And the Hebrews always looked down on them because they considered them to be half-breeds because they had intermarried from the Jewish faith with other races and other nations. So listen to what happens when Philip is in Samaria. Jesus is moving in Samaria. People are coming to know Jesus, and this takes place. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. He said he was the goat. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. So not only is he calling himself the goat, they're all calling him the goat. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued to stay with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So what's going on is that Simon, who said he was the greatest of all time, who was known as Simon the Great, now Simon the Great is seeing Jesus the Greater. And he's seen Jesus at work through this teaching and preaching of Philip, who was just this humble guy who was willing to serve and do what he was asked to do. And yet, miracles are taking place. So you've got a, a dichotomy going on between Simon's teaching about how great he was and the magic that he would do, and then you've got, here's Philip, who just kind of walks in the room, looks at everybody, and says, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus can do in your life. No fanfare, no, no pomp and circumstance, no one saying, hey, I'm the best. No, no, no bling bling, no jewelry, no, none of that stuff, all right? Instead, just here's Jesus, and he can change your life. Now, when the apostles who had stayed back in Jerusalem, the 12, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to Samaria Peter and John, the two disciples who were kind of the leaders there. And they came down and prayed for these new disciples in Samaria that these disciples might receive the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of the people from Samaria, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. 
But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So, here's why I'm telling you this story. I think that as God is recalibrating the culture, as He's recalibrating the church, as He's recalibrating us, as things are changing in powerful ways all around us, as hearts are being recalibrated, as integrity is being recalibrated, as individually we're saying to God, hey, God, look, it's a global pandemic. I've got to change some stuff in my life. I, I mean, this is, this is getting real up in here, God, okay? And so I need to change this. And so, and so as I'm changing it, God starts taking piece by piece by piece of my life and, and recalibrating and putting the pieces together. And then he comes he comes to this piece. He comes to the piece where he says, look, I want to recalibrate the reasons for what you do. I don't just want to change what you do. I just don't want to change how you think. I, I want to I change your motives. I want to change the very core of who you are because that reveals the reasons for the way you act. And that's why we have a passage like this one. There was a man named Simon. So you get the whole story. He's practiced the magic. He's a magician in the first century. He can do things other people don't know how to do. That, that's why he's saying, look, I'm greater than you. Now, the other piece to it is the people in Samaria, in their religious system, they were looking for someone that, that they believed would precede the Messiah. That's one of the differences between them and the people in Jerusalem. They, they believed that there would be this great one who would come. And Simon can do these magic tricks, and he can do things and manipulate people's minds, things that nobody else can explain. But here's the deal. Simon was building a kingdom for Simon. That's why he was the great. But did you notice? Everybody believed it. And right now, we're living in a culture. We're living in a culture where we are personality-driven. We are living in a culture where, where it's all about loyalty to one personality or another personality. And in a personality, charismatic-driven culture, there is the danger, there is the, the problem that the motives behind the characters could be wrong. And what God has to do in order to, to challenge the church, what God has to do in order to change the world is to change us, to recalibrate us to where we are now looking at ourselves and looking at our motives. And that's what he starts doing with Simon. Because, see, Simon promoted himself as the goat. See, it's one thing for you to say, hey, that guy's the greatest of all time. It's another thing for you to say it about yourself. And for those of you who are older, in fact, even older than me, you will remember the, the, the ruckus in this country that Muhammad Ali created when he would say, I am the greatest of all time. And people would go, no, 
somebody's going to beat you. And they did. And, and the fact of the matter is, your self-promotion and your cultivating of a personality never really brings you to the place of being recalibrated for Jesus. And what this story tells us is that it doesn't matter if you brand yourself for marketing. It doesn't matter if you promote yourself to glory. That all the glory really belongs to Jesus. All the glory really belongs to God. And so what Simon has to learn is the same thing we have to learn. So first of all, we've got to learn this. Our motives can be selfish. Our motives can be mixed. Our motives can be wrong. I mean, we, we can want something for the wrong reason. And the thing we want might be good, but we might want it for the wrong reason. And what Jesus is inviting us into is a relationship with Him where it's not just that we want the right things, but that we want the right things for the right reasons. And that's what Simon the Great learns from Philip the humble. It's that Philip wasn't there talking about himself. Peter and John didn't talk about themselves. Don't you remember that when they were in front of the council in the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem for healing a man and doing something that Simon couldn't do? They made a man born lame walk, and, and, and people are saying, no, it's not about us. Jesus did this. This is in the name of Jesus. Friend, I just want to say something to you. If you're being lured into a religious system where it's all about the leader and all about the image and all about the brand, run. Do not walk to the nearest exit because you're not called to follow a church. You're not called to follow a pastor. You're not called to follow a leader who's human. You're called to follow Jesus. And in following Jesus, He will lead us. He will recalibrate. He'll challenge us when our motives are selfish, when our motives are mixed, and our motives are wrong. And by the way, if you're wise, if, if you really let God start checking your motives and, and reissuing them and, and doing work in you, He's going to build for you a system of people. One of the things He did for me was give me the lady I married 40 years ago. I, I married her, and I just thought I married her because she was beautiful. I, I thought I married her because she was talented. I thought I married her because she was smart. I thought I married her for all of these reasons. No, no, I married her for one reason, one reason only. God put Becky in my life to keep me grounded. Because our entire married life, I've been a pastor. And every seven days, I've had the audacity to stand up in front of people like you and say something like this. God says, do you know how audacious that statement really is? for any human being to tell you what God says. And yet there are some of us who are called by God to learn His Word, study His Word, share His Word, and say, could it be that God says? But we have to do it from the right motives. And that's why God put Becky in my life. Because you see, I can't stand in front of you and say those things if I'm really being a jerk all the time at home. And so every Saturday, some of you who've known me a long time, you know this, but some of you are getting to know me in this new season in the life of our church. So some of you online, you need to hear this. Every Saturday, I am a grump. I, I don't do appointments. I mean, if I do your wedding, I'm going to smile at you on the set, but I'm leaving as soon as that wedding's over because you know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about this. 
I'm thinking about what I'm about to tell some people on Sunday morning. My mind, my spirit, everything is up in there. But here's what I know. I can't do this. I can't come and talk to you if my motives are wrong. And so for 40 years, Becky has had to listen to me. The woman has a place in heaven that's huge. I'm just telling you, big starry crown, all of that. Because every Saturday of our married life, when I'm getting ready to preach somewhere to somebody on a Sunday, I look at her and say, are my motives right? Am I doing okay? And she gets so tired of hearing it. She gets so like, you don't have to ask me that. I go, yes, I do, every Saturday, because I can't stand and talk to you if there's something between me and my family, and I can't stand and talk to you if there's something between me and God. I'm just not that good. I can't fake it that well. And that's what Simon the Magician figured out from Philip. And that's what Simon the Magician figured out from Peter and John, is that this relationship with Jesus calls us into mixed, into a place where our mixed motives and our wrong motives and our our sinful motives, they've got to be purified. They've got to be cleansed. But he didn't get it at first. What he saw was the power. What he saw was the impact. What he, what he saw was something he couldn't do. And so when he sees Peter and John lay their hands on the people in Samaria and pray for them, and by the way, what they were doing was a very, very important cultural thing. What they were doing as Jewish men from the holy city of Jerusalem in Samaria to these Samaritans that everybody in Jerusalem despised, was they were saying to them, the same Jesus who died on a cross for us and was resurrected on the third day, that same Jesus has now done for you what he did for us, and we recognize you. Laying their hands on them was simply a way of the church representatives of Jerusalem saying to the people they formerly looked down upon, the people they formerly despised, the people they were divided from, it was their way of saying to them, hey, you're our brothers and sisters too. Maybe, just maybe, if our culture could get past all the personalities and all the charismatic individuals and all the the division and and misplaced loyalties, we might, maybe the church's role would be to reach out to people who look different, talk different, have different economic status, lay our hands on them, and not lay our bricks on them, and say to them, hey, you belong to the same God I belong to. And when Simon saw that, and he saw the change in those people, he realized that's power. That's real power. And Simon the Great resurfaced because his motives hadn't been changed yet. Oh, he had believed, and he had been baptized, and he's following Philip around, and he's amazed, but he hadn't had his motives shifted yet. And now he says to Peter and John, hey, look, listen, I like that. Can, can, I, can I buy that? Here's my money. Now, some of we all look at that's why the historians have looked at it. Oh, that's so bad. And some of us look at it. Oh, I would never do that. Well, no, let, let me explain. In the first century, magicians sold their secrets to each other. Now, they would only sell part of them unless the price was right. And so if you were a good magician and you had, and you had a magic trick and, and you could control people's emotions with that magic trick, then what you would do is you, you would hold that and for a price, you'd sell part of the trick or maybe all the trick to somebody else. 
And so the frame of reference that Simon had is what he had been working in, a bunch of magicians. And here are these two guys from Jerusalem. He's never met them before. They come down. They lay their hands on these people. Suddenly these people are changed. These people are, are speaking in languages they've never learned, and other people are understanding them because that's what happened. It was just a, a reiteration of Pentecost, only now it was in Samaria. And now, and now he's like, wow, that's power. I want that power. And, and when he asked for it, then those selfish, mixed, wrong motives came out. And look what happens. When the apostles at Jerusalem had heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, and they sent Peter and John and came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Go on to that next scripture slide if you would. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. You see, when you realize that your motives are wrong and selfish and mixed, and and someone confronts you about it when the Holy Spirit of God confronts you about it, okay? Then, then you've got a choice to make. You can either say, well, that's just teasing. I'm just, I'm just buying stuff. I'm just doing the normal. No. Or you can repent. You see, that's the real recalibration. When we allow God's Spirit to confront us, He really recalibrates our motives through our repentance. Now, now what does repentance mean? Repentance is, is saying, I'm wrong. Repentance is saying, I'm so wrong that I don't, I don't even know if I can ever be right again. Repentance is saying, I have to change but I don't know how to change. That, that's, why, that's why Simon said to Peter, look, man, don't let this happen to me. I hear you. It's not about money. I, I can't buy it with silver. And yeah, I've got this bitterness inside of me, and, and I've got this stuff, and you see it. And I don't know how you see it, but you see it. And what I know is this. I don't want to be condemned like you're telling me. I don't want to do that. Could you pray for me? Friend, listen to me. What God wants to do for you, what God wants to do for our culture, what God wants to do for our world is to let us see our wrong motives, see our selfishness, see our mixed motives, and He wants to say to us, I can give you new ones, but the only way you're going to get new motives is to repent for the ones you've got. The only way you're going to get a, a, a fresh heart is to Turn over the old one and let me, let me wash it. Let me cleanse it. 
You, you can try all you want, but because you're not capable, you'll only get it so clean. But if you will let me, I will wash you whiter than snow. I told you the historians give Simon the Great a hard time. But, but I would like to suggest to you that maybe, just maybe, there's another option. I ask you if you would identify with him today because many of us on campus, online, on demand, everywhere live with selfish, wrong, mixed motives. And we need what Simon needed from John and Peter. We need the Holy Spirit to confront us and tell us that that those motives we've been working from, the ones that make us act the way we act, think the way we think, and believe the things we believe, they're not godly. And we need to give those to Jesus. And if we give them to Jesus, here's the part of the story that I'd like to suggest. You see, there's no more historical or biblical, there's no more biblical content about who Simon the Great was. And quite honestly, there's, there's very little, if any, historical data beyond Scripture about him after this moment. There actually, there actually are some records prior to this moment about Simon the Great in Samaria. But, but after this, there's not. So rather than write him off as one more failure who didn't get it, I think, I think maybe... Maybe we should remember how God responds to all of our repentance. Because you see, God responds to all of our repentance by, by restoring His motives in us. By restoring our life to a relationship with Him so that our life becomes shaped by His motives. And I would like to believe that the last part of this story includes Simon formerly the great. Listen to it. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they, it's just plural, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now here's what most people say, well, Peter and John went back to Jerusalem. No, see, I think Philip and Peter and John and Simon went back. And I think when they entered into those, I mean, I'm just suggesting, it's a possibility. I can't defend it biblically. It's just an idea of God because I know the nature of God. The nature of God is when He restores us to His motives, He changes us. And we no longer have to be Simon the Great. We can be Simon the Servant. We can be the child of God we were created to be. I think that when they went into those villages, I'm just suggesting, I think it would just be a great story. When I get to heaven, I want to look around. I want to find Simon and say, hey, Simon, did you do this? Because I think he could have gone with Peter and John, Philip. And every time they stopped in a Samaritan village, people would go, hey, that's Simon the Great. He goes, no, 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 no. I, I, I used to be Simon the Great. Now I'm Simon, the servant of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the greatest of all time. Sorry, LeBron. Sorry, Michael. You're not the goat. Jesus 
is the goat. 